evening of the 3rd of March, 1888, British-Italian opera singer Frederick Baker, who went by the stage name Federici, brought down the house the Princess Theatre in Melbourne. It was the opening night of Frost, and Baker had just pulled off a stunning performance as the devil. <laughs> and as the final scene faded, and the devil and Frost descended into hell, really, a trapdoor in the stage, Clarence Lemaine, playing Frost, saw Baker suddenly clutch at the boards as they were descending. <gasps> then, without warning, he fell right on top of him. And they tumbled down beneath the stage. The fall was less than a metre, and Lemaine quickly got to his feet unscathed. Baker, on the other hand, did not get up. He was carried to the green room, where he was pronounced dead 40 minutes later by his personal physician, Dr. Wilmot. The cause of death? A massive heart attack. might have been the end of the story of Mr. Baker and really what an end except that it wasn't. Alone among the cast Lemaine knew something was wrong although he didn't know how wrong and so he was delighted to see Baker join him and the rest of the opera company on stage for a final bow while the audience gave them a standing ovation. The cast, the audience, even the theatre correspondent for the Argus newspaper saw Baker there and the paper noted that at the end of the opera, Mr. Federici shared with his fellow artists in the applause of the audience. But how? At the moment the cast was taking their final bow, Frederick Baker was lying insensible in the green room while Dr. Wilmont was desperately trying to save his life. Who was up there with his castmates to receive all that thunderous applause? I'm Juliana, and you're listening to The Skeptical Historian. Hello, my fellow skeptics. Thank you so very much for joining me once again. As always, I would like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people on whose lands I am recording today and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Shout out also to Studio 4 at the State Library of Victoria, which in my opinion is the premier podcasting studio in the state where this episode is currently being recorded. For more information or to book the studio yourself, please head to www.slv.vic.gov.au. The story of Frederick Baker is one that never fails to entertain. Born Antonelle Frederick Dimitrov Baker in Florence, Italy, his father was a military man, and Baker himself had initially trained for a role in the diplomatic service. However, while completing his education in England, his father was an officer in the British Army, he decided instead to pursue a career in opera and became a highly sought-after performer for bass baritone parts. Apologies to any opera fans in the audience today. I am not an opera goer myself, so I'll do my best to get these terms right. But you'll have to bear with me as I go along. For those listeners who, like me, are not fans of the opera, don't worry. 
There won't be too many technical opera terms and I'm definitely not going to sing. It's not clear when Frederick Baker started calling himself Frederick Frederiki, which was the stage name he went by until his death. We do know that he left performing briefly in 1878 after declaring bankruptcy and he joined the British Army to avoid his creditors, which was very common at the time. But he was back on stage a year later and by this time he was going by Frederick Frederiki. And there's also no evidence that he was still being pursued for his debts. He married in 1879 to Jane Eleanor Fennelly, another performer, and the couple went on to have two children together before his untimely death. The very interesting thing about Baker is that while his performing history can be easily traced through theatre programs, little is known about his personal life. It's very opaque And there are some very interesting anomalies. Let's take his army service, for example. It's perfectly possible that he did serve in the army. He came from a military family, after all, and had initially been training for a career in the diplomatic service. And if he had become a bankrupt, well, it makes even more sense. For decades, the British army had been something of a haven for debtors and bankrupts, although Not necessarily a popular one, and certainly not one to be entered into lightly. And in 1870, army service became just that little bit more attractive, because the term of enlistment in the army had been reduced from 21 years, which might as well have been a lifetime, to 12. And further reforms at this time also meant that new recruits only had to spend their first six years on active service. This was across all branches of the military, by the way, not just the army. And they could choose to spend the remainder of their time in the reserves. Now, soldiering in the British Army remained as poorly paid as ever, about a shilling a day, although that didn't account for stoppages and paying for uniforms and rations and other such things. And while flogging and branding had been abolished, hard punishment was still the norm for even the slightest infraction. What's more, if Baker joined the army in 1878, as he claimed, how on earth could he have been performing again and out of the army by 1879? That's not six years by anyone's count. There are two possibilities, I think. The first is that Baker might have been lying about joining the army at all. Discrepancies exist in his telling, and he claimed to have served in two separate units in his less than one year, which is highly unlikely. Baker was a flamboyant character. He enjoyed telling a good story, and trumped-up tales of his time as a heroic soldier would not have been beyond him. The other possibility is that Baker did join the army, but he may very well have been discharged rather quickly. He may not have been suited to soldiering. It was a much harder life than those on the outside imagined. And the Cardwell reforms, which had changed the structure of the British army for the better, had also made it much easier to quickly and quietly discharge men who were considered to be bad characters. Now, as I mentioned, the British Army had always been a bit of a haven for bad characters, 
and they hadn't been very good at checking the backgrounds of their new recruits. Debtors or people trying to avoid prison, sometimes for crimes as serious as murder or rape, could usually find a safe haven in the army, and the army didn't object to people with extremely violent pasts. In fact, the more violent, the better. But the Cardwell reforms started to change this and were forcing the army to become a bit more like what we would recognise as a modern military, where you couldn't just throw anyone in the ranks and then forget about them. If Baker was on the run from his creditors, he would have been exactly the sort of bad character that the army was trying to prevent from hiding within its ranks at this time. However, this might not be the reason for a discharge, if indeed a discharge actually happened. Because... Following his rather dramatic death at the Prince's Theatre, it was revealed that Baker had suffered from heart disease since he was a very young man. He regularly took nitroglycerin tablets and carried some in his pocket for emergencies, something that his castmates were well aware of. Heart disease would have made him ineligible for military service. But in the 1870s, officers and recruiting sergeants were still very much relying on recruits volunteering this kind of information. Now, recruits did have to go through a medical exam, of course, but heart disease is an insidious thing and it isn't always easy to spot today, let alone with the tools that were available in 1878. If Baker had successfully crept into the army to get away from his debts by pretending not to have heart disease, and then had some kind of minor or even major heart scare during the first term of his enlistment, he would have been medically discharged. The only other way out after such a short time would have been to purchase his discharge, but if he was a bankrupt on the run from his creditors, he wouldn't have had enough money to do so. However he left the army, and I personally think a medical discharge is the most likely answer, if he ever enlisted at all, he reached the peak of his opera career shortly after returning to the stage and he was still at the pinnacle of this when he died. Speaking of his death, I do want to clear up a little myth that still floats around on the internet. Baker didn't die as he fell through that trap door. He suffered a major heart attack as he and his co-star Lumaine were descending through the trapdoor, but he died 40 minutes later in the green room. Despite the way it's often portrayed on television, heart attacks don't usually result in death seconds after they set in. So is this really all there is to the story of Frederick Baker? A man with long-term heart disease killed by a heart attack that just happened to occur at the most dramatic moment possible? Of course not. Stick around, sceptics. It's about to get spooky in here. And I am back like the ghost of Frederick Baker, who, according to legend, my friends, has been haunting the Princess Theatre ever since he died there in 1888. I've already mentioned the first sighting, actually. And Baker wasn't even dead when it occurred, although he was dying in the green room, as we've discussed. As the cast was taking their final bow in front of that madly cheering audience, he was right there with them, 
various members of the audience saw him. His fellow performers saw him. The Argus's theatre correspondents saw him. Everyone was confident they'd spotted him there. But, as we've established, Baker couldn't have been there because he was unconscious and dying in another part of the theatre. He would shuffle off his mortal coil before the curtain came down for the last time and the company was told of his demise after the audience had already left. All of them, though, maintained they'd seen him right there with them on the stage. But consider this. Only Clarence Lemaine, who had been with Baker when he'd first suffered the heart attack, actually knew anything was wrong. He'd seen his co-star fall, after all. He'd actually been pulled down by him and saw him carried off to the green room. But Lemaine had no idea Baker was dying. If anything, he might have thought his fellow performer had simply collapsed due to the long hours they'd all been putting in. Baker had not only been rehearsing to play the devil in Faust over the last five weeks, but had been performing smaller parts in various other operas to make ends meet. It was a punishing schedule, especially for a man with heart disease. But apart from Lemaine, no one else in the company knew anything was wrong. The cast all expected to see Baker out on stage with them. So they did. Last episode about alien big cats, we talked about how if you want to see something, your brain will ensure you do. I also wonder how many of the cast really did see Baker or was it because they all knew he was supposed to be there? They simply assumed he was there, just out of their line of sight. They were under spotlights. They'd gained a standing ovation on opening night. I'd actually be surprised if they could see anything at all, to be perfectly honest with you. But if Baker wasn't next to them, they'd assume he was standing next to someone else. And really, why wouldn't they? He was supposed to be there. This could also be the explanation for why various members of the audience and a theatre correspondent claimed they saw him too. It's also perfectly possible that they didn't see him. But when they thought back over it later, they assumed they must just have missed him, given they all had every reason to believe he'd joined the lineup of the cast. There's also another intriguing possibility that I can't ignore. Baker died on a Saturday night, but the news of his death wasn't printed in the papers until Monday morning. No one from the public knew about it until then and it caused an immediate sensation when it was published with all and sundry claiming they'd not only been at the opera that night but had seen Baker as he collapsed on the stage and tumbled through the trapdoor. Which, remember, he didn't actually collapse until he was through the trapdoor and off the stage. And then... These viewers claimed they had all seen him join the cast for the final curtain call. Now, we'll never know how many of these people were actually at the opera that night. If everyone who wrote into the papers afterwards was telling the truth, it would seem that the whole population of Melbourne at the time, which was about 490,000 people, were present. They weren't. Not least because the Princess Theatre can only seat 1,452. But much like all those who claim to have seen the Beatles at the Cavern Club or have been in Dallas, Texas when JFK was assassinated, people wanted to feel like they were somehow involved. And to be honest, 
can we really blame them? Baker's death is tragic, of course. I'm not downplaying that. But it's also morbidly captivating. Suffering a heart attack while playing Satan himself in front of a sold-out crowd while descending into hell? I mean, come on, it's a sensational story. Now, I'm not going to go into whether ghosts exist or not. The paranormal is a fascinating topic, but it's also one that's very much down to personal beliefs. According to a survey in 2021, for instance, 48% of Australians said they believed in ghosts. But I have some doubts about the veracity of these findings. Now, the research was conducted by McCrindle Research, which is a very reputable company, but it was done on behalf of the Centre for Public Christianity. Now, this is not a disreputable organisation, but like all organisations, it has an agenda. And the Centre for Public Christianity seeks to engage mainstream media and the general public with high-quality, well-researched print, video and audio material about the relevance of Christianity in the 21st century. That's quoting from their website. Now, on their behalf, McCrindle Research surveyed a 1,000 people and asked a variety of questions about beliefs in the spiritual and the paranormal, as well as questions about the participants' faith, Christians or otherwise. From their responses, they published some very interesting statistics, like the one I just shared. But think about this. They surveyed a 1,000 people. It sounds like a lot until you hear that the population of Australia is 25.69 million people, making claims like 48% of Australians believe in ghosts after surveying what accounts to 0.004% of that population feels a little far-fetched and I think we'd need further information before making such a broad generalisation. In my opinion, if you believe in ghosts, that's great. If you don't believe in ghosts, that's great too. As long as you're not hurting anybody or trying to force people to believe the way you do, believe whatever you want. But whatever you believe about ghosts, there's no denying that ghost stories are a huge part of the fabric of modern society. Just look at the number of ghost tours or after-dark attractions springing up. I've done a few of them myself. And ghost hunting is a thriving business. It always has been too. Humans have been trying to communicate and connect with the dead since we were living in caves. In the case of Frederick Baker, his ghost has been seen so frequently at the Princess Theatre that a seat in the dress circle is always reserved for him on opening night. And performers reckon it's good luck if he appears to watch their play. Whether people really are seeing his ghost or not is irrelevant. It's a great story and he's become far more famous in death than he ever was in life. And the more famous someone becomes, the more often it seems they come back from the dead. I'm going to take another break here and I'll return with another spooky story. Hey skeptics, we're heading across the Pacific for this tale and into a quaint little building called the White House, which, of course, is not really quaint or little at all. It's been the home and official workplace of the President of the United States since 1800 and has undergone more renovations and restorations than, well, probably any other building of its time, to be honest. It's been built, extended, burnt down, rebuilt, painted and repainted with each new administration, extended some more and had more rooms turned over than cards in a game of Uno. 
even if, like me, you've never set foot in the United States of America, you've most likely heard of the White House. It's also, supposedly, the most famous haunted house in America. The most frequently seen ghost there is, in fact, that of President Abraham Lincoln, who was assassinated in 1865 during the American Civil War. In one particularly famous story, Lincoln supposedly appeared to none other than British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Here's how that story goes. In 1942, Winston Churchill was staying at the White House, a guest of President Roosevelt, and he had been given the Lincoln bedroom as his accommodation. Churchill couldn't sleep, so decided that a late-night bath, along with a glass of whiskey and a cigar, would be just the thing. He finished his bath and his drink, but was still smoking his cigar as he left the bathroom and strode buck-naked into the adjoining bedroom to put on his pyjamas. And there, leaning against the mantelpiece, was none other than Abraham Lincoln himself, or his ghost at least. But Churchill, cool as a cucumber, simply took out his cigar and said politely, "'Good evening, Mr. President. You seem to have me at a disadvantage.' At which point, President Lincoln's ghost smiled and vanished. It's a fantastic story. I'm not going to deny that. It's great. But it's also an unlikely one. Whether you believe President Lincoln's ghost is haunting the White House or not, there are several reasons why Churchill probably didn't encounter him with or without his clothes on. Firstly... Winston Churchill was a serial liar who knew how to play an audience, so it's worth being suspicious of anything he said that can't be verified by at least one other source. In this case, it's not actually even clear if he told this story or if someone else told it about him. But if it was the latter case, and assuming it was told while he was still alive, he never contradicted it. And we do know that he was a believer in ghosts and the paranormal. Secondly, while Churchill was a frequent visitor to the White House during World War II, he never stayed in a suite called the Lincoln Bedroom. In fact, he stayed in the Rose Suite, which was opposite this room, as the Lincoln Bedroom was occupied by United States Secretary of Commerce Harry Hopkins, who was a personal friend and close advisor to then-President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Thirdly, and perhaps most tellingly, the Lincoln bedroom didn't exist in 1942, my friends. The room had existed since before Lincoln's time, and during his administration it had been a study, not a bedroom. It was a bedroom at the time Churchill stayed at the White House, and while Harry Hopkins was staying there too. But it was called the Blue Suite, not the Lincoln bedroom. It wouldn't be renamed the Lincoln Bedroom until 1961, and as I mentioned, it had no real connection to President Lincoln except for the fact that it had once been one of his many studies and meeting rooms. Also, can we just take a moment to be rational about this, please? Imagine coming out of a bath in your private room, completely naked, and coming across a man who'd been dead for 77 years leaning on your mantelpiece. The idea that anyone, even Winston Churchill, would simply declare that the spectral visitor had the advantage of them 
is ludicrous. But Churchill wasn't the only famous visitor to the White House who claimed to have seen Lincoln's ghost. Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands, who also visited during World War II, responded to a knock on her door one evening and came face to face with President Lincoln in a frock coat and top hat. She promptly fainted. If the story is true, I have to give Mr Lincoln's spirit credit for making sure he was wearing the appropriate formal attire before calling on the Queen of the Netherlands. His ghost has also been seen by multiple presidents, first ladies and White House staff, and supposedly he appears most frequently when the United States is in dire need, like a sort of American King Arthur. I'm not quite sure what a ghost can do if a country is in dire need, but it certainly makes for quite the story. And given the myths around Lincoln and the American Civil War, which I don't have time to go into today, but maybe another episode, I'm not surprised that this particular idea has caught on. Abraham Lincoln is not the only ghost supposedly haunting the White House, but he's the most frequently spotted. He's also one of the most well-known figures in US history, both inside and outside the States. Even if you don't know what he did or why he's famous, you've probably heard of Abraham Lincoln, even just in passing. And you might even know that he was assassinated. Famous ghosts are more frequently spotted than the spectres who haven't made the history books and have far more stories attached to them than disembodied things that go bump in the night. A common theme in ghost stories is the idea that ghosts have unfinished business, that they're still here because of something they need to do before moving on. Lincoln, who died prematurely while leading his country during a war he was deeply invested in, and a civil war at that, certainly fits this bill. I'm not saying that all these stories about Lincoln's ghost wandering around the White House are lies, but a staggering amount of people have lived and died in that building over the last two centuries, many of them completely unknown to history. Like Frederick Baker at the Prince's Theatre, Lincoln has an incredible story, and you can't have a ghost without a story. Perhaps that's why he's seen so often. Another kind of story often attached to ghostly apparitions is the eternal tragedy. There's endless versions of it, where the victim of a horrible, devastating event is trapped forever, still trying to change their fate. At the White House, there's a ghost who fits this pattern perfectly, and that's that of Anna Surratt. Anna's mother, Mary, was sentenced to death for aiding the plotters who had murdered Abraham Lincoln, and there's the link to a famous person again. A terrified and desperate Anna went to the White House and knocked on the doors begging to speak to President Andrew Johnson, but was sent away without seeing him, and her mother was executed. This tragedy really occurred. If you're interested, you can read more about Anna Surratt and her mother Mary on the History of American Women blog, among other sources, and I'll put up a bit of information on my blog too. But Anna lived on after her mother's death. She didn't die on the White House steps. She got married, she had children and grandchildren, and she died quite comfortably off in 1904. The trauma of her mother's death stayed with her throughout her life, of course, but is she really haunting the White House? Or is it the horror of her story that leads people to believe she's still there? 
The fact that her story is also connected to that of Lincoln also means it's more well-known than most. I'm sure the White House doors have seen plenty of desperate beggars over the years, but few of them have had their names go down in history like Anna Sirrett. If we step out of the US and take a trip over to London, another rather famous ghost who fits the eternal tragedy narrative is that of Catherine Howard, the fifth wife of the notorious King Henry VIII of England. At Hampton Court Palace, where she lived with Henry, Catherine learned of the conspiracy to have her executed and realised the only man who could save her was the king. She ran down a corridor at Hampton Court, screaming for her husband, but she never reached him, and instead she was apprehended and taken away. Later, she was beheaded. This is history. Like the terribly sad story of Anna Surratt begging to see President Johnson, it really happened. But to this day, people claim to have seen or much more commonly heard Catherine Howard running along that corridor at Hampton Court, screaming for King Henry. Once more, she was a person who, in her life, had a story, and an incredibly tragic one at that. So she makes perfect material for ghost stories. People know of her, people know her story, and she's connected to one of the most famous men in English history. Henry's other beheaded queen, Anne Boleyn, is also said to haunt another famous English royal palace, this being the Tower of London, where she was executed in 1536. According to legend, Anne's headless torso wanders mournfully through the tower, holding her severed head under her arm, precisely what she's looking for or doing is anyone's guess. But once again, we see the pattern of a well-known figure who was either famous in their own right or connected to someone famous becoming a ghost. Tragedy is something we've all experienced at some point, and particularly poignant stories set off strong emotions. Ghost stories are emotional tales by nature, So the more tragic an event in someone's life is, and the more well-known they are, the more likely it seems people will claim they've seen their ghost. Again, whether the apparition is real or not becomes irrelevant because everyone loves a good story. I'm going to take another break here, and when I return, we're going to examine a very different but very common kind of ghost story. Keep the lights on. I won't be gone long. And welcome back. If you're ever in Melbourne, Australia, I highly recommend you check out the Old Melbourne Jail, spelt the old English way of G-A-O-L. It was Melbourne's first prison, built when the colony of Victoria was little more than a sliver of land along the coast, inhabited by convicts and their soldier guards, after they'd massacred and driven off the Indigenous people. The Old Melbourne Jail ceased to operate as a prison in 1924 and is run today by the National Trust of Victoria. Now, during its days as a prison, it held some of Victoria's most dangerous criminals, including rapists, murderers and bushrangers. And it was the scene of between 133 and 135 executions by hanging. Now, the exact number is disputed. The records are not clear. But it was either 133, 134 or 135. Take your pick. It also saw countless floggings and acts of brutality by inmates and prison officers. It was a place of heart-wrenching despair as well. And there were many people imprisoned along with the violent offenders 
who shouldn't have been locked up in such a place to begin with. For much of the jail's operation, poverty was still criminalised and people were imprisoned for the crime of being without lawful or obvious means of support, which was a Victorian-era euphemism for being poor and visible in public. And these people were housed in the same conditions as the murderers and the bushrangers, rather than being given support that would have helped them rebuild their lives. Unsurprisingly, given all the violence the jail has seen over the years, plenty of people believe it's haunted. But the ghost stories associated with the old Melbourne jail, and a few more we'll look at shortly, are quite different to those of Frederick Baker enjoying opening night at the Princess Theatre or Abraham Lincoln appearing to naked British Prime Ministers. The ghosts at the old Melbourne jail are never seen but are rather heard and felt. Cell 17 is particularly infamous as the haunting ground of a malevolent spirit who bites, pinches and scratches unwary visitors hard enough to bruise. The entity is never seen, only felt, and research has so far drawn a blank on who the ghost may be. Plenty of people were imprisoned in Cell 17, and it's almost impossible to narrow it down. Others claim to have heard sobbing, screaming and the crack of a whip while viewing the flogging triangle. And there are numerous accounts of unexplained knocks, groans and rattling doors. Given the building is nearly 180 years old, however, I wouldn't be surprised if those knocks, groans and rattles have more to do with its age than anything supernatural. But places with known violent history often have these kinds of ghost stories attached to them. Not so much apparitions and well-known spirits, but sounds and a sense of sadness. Outside of local legend, few of the people who lived or died in these places are well-known. So the ghost stories become attached to the history of the place rather than the story of any individuals there. A similar phenomenon has been reported by visitors to Auschwitz in Poland who claim to have heard the sounds of screaming and choking coming from the preserved gas chambers. Many old lunatic asylums in all corners of the world report stories like this too. And the idea of misery and horror echoing down through the years is a powerful one. But when we visit somewhere that has a history that is known to be violent, tragic or heartbreakingly sad or sometimes all three, are we really hearing or feeling the weight of that history? Or is it simply because we know what happened that our minds begin to construct the idea of what we think we should be seeing, hearing or feeling? I can share my own experience like this. While on holiday in Ireland in 2018, I visited Blarney Castle in County Cork and yes, For those wondering, I did kiss the Blarney Stone. Now, while I was exploring the grounds, which in my humble opinion are actually the best part of Blarney Castle, I found myself near what is called the Witch Stone. Supposedly, the Blarney Witch is trapped in the stone by day and leaves only at night to do whatever it is witches do in abandoned castles. It's in an area where the trees grow quite close together So it's cool and the light is dappled and off to the side of the witch stone is a ring of stones that archaeologists believe were used in ancient druidic rituals before Christianity reached Ireland. 
The way the light and shadow plays over the witch stone, though, it does seem to breathe. And at the point I was viewing it, I was on my own and out of earshot of the multiple other tourists who were in the grounds. The day was pleasant, but under the shade of the closely packed trees, it was cooler than it had been, and there was a slight breeze which made me shiver a little. Off to the right of where I was standing viewing the witch stone was a sheltered set of stairs that had been carved into the rock, and from the angle I was on, I couldn't see the bottom of them. They might have been a gateway to another realm. It was quiet, apart from the breeze and the occasional bird, and in that moment, in that silent place filled with so much history and mythology I could absolutely believe that I could see the Blarney witch in her stony prison and she was just itching to emerge from within and curse me (laughs) then a pair of tourists came up the stairs and the moment was gone but I wonder if I would have felt that moment quite so intensely had I not been reading all the information panels about the Blarney Witch before I got there, or if I wasn't in such an atmospheric place as an abandoned castle. I'm from New Zealand and grew up in Australia, so I'd never seen the ruins of an actual European-style castle like the ones in my storybooks until I went on holiday. I'm sure it helped too that I was in a country like Ireland, which has such a deep, rich and well-known mythology and which ties that mythology beautifully into its tourist attractions. They certainly got a whole lot of money out of me for that. But for all I know, maybe I did have a lucky escape from the Blarney Witch that day. Although I have my doubts. But what is it that makes people believe in the supernatural? Is it just the atmosphere or a good story or something else entirely? I'm going to examine this question a little more after this break. And welcome once more to this rather spooky episode of The Skeptical Historian. Last episode, we discussed another phenomenon that could be linked to the supernatural, the paranormal, and that is the belief in alien big cats. That is, big cats seen in places like the Australian bush outside their regular environments. There are whole communities of people who not only believe that the ABCs are out there, but devote considerable time and resources to proving it. It's much the same with ghosts. There are many die-hard believers in the paranormal who spend vast amounts of time and money trying to prove to the skeptics that such things are real. While I can honestly say I'm not a believer in alien big cats, I'm not sure where I stand on the idea of ghosts or the paranormal. If I was flat out asked in a survey, do you believe in ghosts? I'd have to answer, I'm not sure. Although if I was asked, can science explain everything? My response would be a definitive, no. But why do people believe in ghosts? Academics have been wrestling with this question for decades. As I mentioned earlier, it's hard to quantify how many people really believe in ghosts among a population because the data sets are usually relatively small. Often, as with the study I talked about near the beginning of this episode, the research is also funded by organisations with a vested interest in a particular outcome. Now, sources like this need to be treated with caution as private institutions don't need to publish their findings and are quite within their rights to selectively publish only the data that supports their predetermined conclusion. This is bad research practice to be sure, 
but it's not illegal for the private company. Now, I'm not saying that every private company that commissions research does this, but it is something to be aware of. But outside of the private research space, public institutions have also done plenty of research and academics have devoted their entire careers to answering the question of why people believe in ghosts. Like many things people believe in that defy easy explanation, the reasons for believing in the paranormal are complex and varied. Some people have had an unusual and unexplainable experience that they put down to the paranormal, such as experiencing sleep paralysis, which, as anyone who's ever suffered it will tell you, and I can tell you from my own experience, is absolutely terrifying. Other people, though, have not had any experiences, but still believe in ghosts, and their belief is more akin to faith. Some cultures have very strong traditions regarding ghosts. Lots of Southeast Asian countries do have very strong cultural traditions regarding spirits of the dead and how they interact with the living. Studies have also shown that people who survive a traumatic event, and I'm talking more events like natural disasters or major wars, will tend to have a much stronger belief in the paranormal and supernatural after the event, regardless of what their beliefs were before. And this is especially true if people they knew or loved were killed during that traumatic event. Survivors, though, are also more likely to look for proof that their loved ones are still with them somehow. And this ties in with the more general work done by academics on the belief in ghosts and the paranormal. If you already believe ghosts exist, you're more likely to interpret a strange event as paranormal. A study in 2002 showed that when people visit a location and are told it's haunted, they're more likely to experience what they perceive as paranormal activity, even if they're being lied to and the house or the place they're visiting has never been known to be haunted. This probably explains my experience at Blarney Castle. If I hadn't read about the Blarney Witch, I would have had no reason to know the myth about the Witch Stone or to imagine, in that quiet moment, that I was experiencing anything other than the slightly unsettling feeling we've all had when it's a bit too quiet. The same study also proved that if people are visiting a location known to be haunted, and are told that there's been an increase in paranormal activity lately, they're almost twice as likely to experience something that they put down to ghosts or spirits. These can be experiences such as feeling you're being watched or hearing a sound you can't place, right up to people claiming they've seen apparitions or physical manifestations, such as a door slamming of its own accord. But no matter how many studies are done, and how much time goes into either finding ghosts or finding out why people believe in ghosts, no one has yet found a definitive reason why these beliefs persist. The closest these studies have come is to suggest that the idea of ghosts comforts believers about their own mortality. After all, we humans do like to be in control, and unfortunately death is something we can't control. For many of us, that's a frightening thing. And perhaps the belief in ghosts and that we and maybe our loved ones can continue to be together in a familiar place brings us some comfort. Similar findings have been made about religious beliefs across cultures and religions. 
it brings a measure of comfort and control to believers. But beyond that, I think there's another reason that we're willing to believe in the supernatural. Besides these ideas of comfort and control or explaining the unexplainable. I think we like to believe in ghosts because it's fun. The further we get from an event and the more it fades from living memory, the more we start to romanticise it. Returning to Frederick Baker, in life he was a very good performer, but beyond that he wasn't really all that exciting and he wouldn't have been remembered outside of theatrical histories if his heart disease had finally caught up to him in his bed at home. The story of a man with heart disease dying of a heart attack is, well, it's common. It's not exciting. But the story of a man dying of a heart attack on stage in front of an audience, regardless of whether or not he had heart disease, that's exciting. And we've taken so much artistic license with Baker's death that it could almost be said that his ghost does exist in the public imagination. But remember also, as much as this story has a ring of excitement, Frederick Baker and all the other ghosts we've discussed in this episode were real people. Baker left behind a wife and two young children, as well as friends and castmates who'd cared about him. The minister conducting his funeral had known Baker as well and wept during the service. Afterwards, his wife returned to England, taking the children with her to live with her father. I can't help but wonder how much of her decision to leave Australia was based on her desire to escape scrutiny as the ghost stories surrounding her dead husband began to take on a life of their own. As for Baker's earthly remains, he was buried at the Melbourne General Cemetery and you can visit his grave there today. Look for a white marble-like headstone with a cross carved on top, close to the enormous Birkenwills monument. And if you do go to the Prince's Theatre, I have a word of advice. Watch the performance you paid to see. You'll enjoy yourself. You'll have a wonderful time. And if Frederick Baker really is there in his reserved seat, he's not going to bother you. Hopefully, he's enjoying the performance just as much as you are. Thanks for listening. As always, you can get in touch with me at my website, that is www.skepticalhistory.com, that's skeptical with a K, or on my social media. I am Juliana Byers on both LinkedIn and Instagram. Next episode, we're having a look at one of the most terrifying diseases humans have ever encountered bubonic plague. <coughs> <coughs> While it's most infamous for decimating a third of Europe's population in the 14th century, Australia had its own brush with this deadly disease in 1900. So, why has hardly anyone heard about it? Find out next time on The Skeptical Historian. The Skeptical Historian is researched, produced and hosted by me, Juliana Byers. You can find a full list of resources used in research by going to my website and clicking on Sources. Sound effects by Adobe Creative Cloud, used under the Adobe Software License Agreement. Pixabay, used under Creative Commons 4.0 International License. And Epidemic Sound, used under an Epidemic Sound Individual License. The music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic was also used under this license. 
Podcast hosting is by rss.com. See you next time, skeptics. <laughs>